Yes, I, look, Tesla definitely has a lot of cars on the road. Their cameras are really designed for perception, not for mapping. So those are two different things. But I don't think Tesla is eager to share all that data. Hello everyone, welcome to DeFire. I'm Jonas, and if you have ever found yourself lost in a maze of crypto and blockchain, think of this podcast as your friendly guide through that labyrinth. Today, I want to start with a number that stopped me in my tracks. 5.7 million. That's how many kilometers have been mapped by HiveMapper. To put that in perspective, it's about 9% of all the roads in the world. And they have done this in just one year. It's a story that begins with a simple idea. What if mapping our world could be as decentralized as cryptocurrency itself? And this isn't just any map. It's a living, breathing entity constantly evolving with every turn and every new road. Behind this revolutionary idea is Ariel Seidman, CEO and co-founder of HiveMapper. He's joining us today and shares how they are weaving together blockchain technology and community input to literally redraw the map of our world. So how does a project go from a concept to covering nearly one-tenth of the world's roads? And what does this mean for the future of navigation, blockchain, and our interaction with the physical world? Let's find out. Welcome to DeFire. In the last podcast, we had um, Austin Federer, the head of Solana, the head of strategy of Solana on, and yeah. he already talked about HiveMapper. So people who heard that episode, they already know what HiveMapper is all about and what you are all about. But for people who haven't heard that episode, please give us the elevator pitch of what is HiveMapper, why is it important? And of course, also, who are you, Ariel? Who are you? And intro to you yeah. as well. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, my name is Ariel Seidman. And uh, one of the people here who started HiveMapper, the HiveMapper Mapping Network, you know, I've been in the mapping industry for many, many years now. So really my first job out of school um, back going to 2005 timeframe was at Yahoo. This was when it was fun to be at Yahoo. Um, you know, Yahoo, I was part of the Yahoo search team and we actually had about 30, 35% market share. Google was like roughly the same at that time. And it was a very competitive, exciting environment. I then ultimately ran maps of local data and started to just understand wow, uh, it is crazy expensive to collect all this information. Google Maps at that point started to invest very aggressively in terms of building out its own collection capabilities, right? So Google Street View, airplanes, you know, you name it, they were investing and pouring billions of dollars into it. Unfortunately, Yahoo was not able to match or, you know, quite frankly, chose not to match that collection capability. And so our map data started to suffer as a result of that. I got frustrated with Yahoo because they weren't able to kind of take these bigger bets. Um, but what I did realize was, A, just how expensive it was to build a map. And what that meant for mapping as a whole was it would either be very, very, very wealthy governments or very, very, very large corporations that had the wherewithal to do it. Mm -hmm. So the trick is, and I've tried a lot of different approaches to kind of building maps over the years as an entrepreneur, the trick is if you go crowdsourced, okay, then what usually happens, and you've seen this kind of in multiple iterations before HiveMapper, is that the quality of the data is not sufficient for a lot of use cases, okay? Um, 
So what you have to do is you have to say, okay, yeah, I need crowdsource because I got to go global, right? I want to keep costs down from a collection perspective. But you also need to manage quality and pull the quality bar up so that the data is actually useful for a lot of very valuable use cases, primarily in navigation, okay? And that's where a lot of money actually is at navigation. So that's why we built the Dashcam. So what is HiveMapper? HiveMapper is this Dashcam that you buy. Um, there's two different models. It's not only a really good dash cam, but there are technology inside that dash cam that also make it a great mapper, right? Mm -hmm. So it can actually collect really, really high quality data. So that's how we kind of pull that quality bar back up there. And what you do is you just drive. You just drive like you normally do. You put the dash cam on and you're just driving around. All of that imagery flows up to Hive Mapper. And then we start, we have this other system called Map AI. And that's extracting out all of the traffic signs and street signs and information that you see around yourself. So turn restriction sign over here, traffic lights over there, 35 mile per hour speed will in a sign. And it's properly positioning all those objects in the real physical world, which is really hard. Um, and then we turn around and we sell all this data to various customers, right? Whether they be logistics customers, supply chain customers, mobility customers, other mapping companies, you know, local federal government insurance companies, you know, ultimately one of the really big markets is cars themselves. Okay. We launched on Solana almost one year ago. So we're coming up our one year anniversary, uh -huh. very different time back then. <laughs> it was a crazy, we literally launched, I think it was, uh, we launched and then two days later, the FTX stuff happened. Oh my God. <laughs> And, yeah. and and I guess at that time you you might have second guessed your your choice, right? I mean, was it the real horse that you you were betting on with Solana, or or didn't that cross your mind at the time? It definitely crossed our mind, but I mean, um, I mean, I knew the Solana team, which was really important, right? And I knew uh -huh. them to be just highly ethical people. My question was not, you know, is Solana compromised in some way? That never crossed my mind. My question was, you know, would the market kind of destroy them as a result of that? And, you know, kudos to the entire Solana organization, Tole Raj, a lot of other people like yourself, who really just like kept building, right? Kept focus. And I'm sure it wasn't easy. Um, and, you know, I think there was probably like one or two conversations internally, but very quickly we're like, no, we're sticking with it. Like mm -hmm. these guys are going to pull through, you know, we're going to pull through, we're going to continue building. Um, so yeah, a year makes a difference. So you fast forward now, we're at roughly 6 million unique road kilometers that have been mapped on the high member mapping network. Um, that's roughly 10% of the global roads. And I think I'm over like 82 million miles total. Yeah. Uh, we're mapping in over 90 countries at this point. Um, and we just announced that, uh, we actually have paying customers who are integrating the mapping APIs into their products and paying us for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think I think there's a lot. Let's let's take this a little bit apart, um, and maybe sure. for people who who are new to this Hive Mapper and and, and haven't thought so deeply about maps. Um, personally, I'm a heavy Google Maps user myself. <laughs> you know, I live in Zurich. I don't even have a car, and it's a small yeah. city and nowhere to go. But I use it for different things. I I, I use it to see is this place that I'm going like. Uh, any good about the reviews, right? Is, is, is this restaurant any good? Is my local swimming pool open today? And it, it, are there a lot of people there before I'll go do my training um, and stuff like that? But what, I, what we understand is HiveMapper 
is not that hive mapper who who are the end users um, you mentioned some paying customers etc who is what is the product who, who is the like the ideal customer of hive mapper yeah so yeah what you're describing is a different layer of the map that we're, we're not focused on that's really about what's commonly referred to as places um mm -hmm. it's a very valuable part right like hey pizza shop all that kind of stuff you know, what are the reviews? Show me photos. How, what do they have on the menu? That kind of stuff. Um, we focus on navigation primarily. So street level navigation. So it's really important for us to understand, you know, how many lanes are in the road? What's the speed limit? Is this a one-way street or a two-way street? Um, are you allowed to make a right-hand turn here? Are you allowed to make a, a U-turn? All of that kind of information. Mm -hmm. And so there are, broadly speaking, two customer groups, right? There are existing customers today. Um that we're supplementing their data sets, okay? So a customer comes to us and says, hey, look, I have autonomous vehicles, okay? But I am lacking coverage or freshness, right, in these specific areas. And I want to use the HiveMapper API to supplement the data that I do have, right? Mm -hmm. So that is the primary customer today that is using HiveMapper as a supplement because we don't have yet 100% coverage in all of these cities. At a certain point we will, and then we'll become the primary, and then maybe other products will be supplementing ours, right? Mm -hmm. And so it takes time obviously to kind of build the map to the level where you're the dominant one, you're the primary one, and then there's other secondary and tertiary ones. Okay. There are there are existing, there are two large existing markets today, right? So like, if you go to Uber, you go to GoJack, you know, you go to FedEx, you go to UPS, um, you go to an uh, insurance company like Allstate, um, you go to any federal, not any, many federal government agencies as well as state and local, they are buying and using maps. Okay. So there's a number two or number three player in the ride sharing business. I, I know for a fact that they're roughly spending 25 million to $35 million a year on Google Maps APIs. Okay. On the what business? Sorry, I didn't catch that. Or, Right. So this this is a number two or number three player in the ride sharing business. Uh, ride sharing, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like a competitor to Uber. Like Lyft. Type of thing. Lyft uh, it's not Lyft, it's another one. But, um, they're spending roughly $25 million to $35 million a year. Okay. Oh, wow. uh, there are millions of businesses that rely on Google Maps and pay Google Maps uh, mm -hmm. for various APIs. And that's really the primary business that we're going after today. Mm -hmm. there's, there's another business that is much more nascent, but is very large. And that is the cars themselves. Okay. So the end customer there would be somebody like a Ford or a GM or a BMW or somebody like that. Why? There's a couple of reasons. One is a lot of governments, regulators, the EU specifically, is now saying any new car that's assembled, it needs to have speed limit information embedded inside the car. So the car needs to know, hey, what road am I on? And what is the speed limit here? So this is not map data for the purposes of the consumer, right? It's not like, hey, I'm gonna go to a pizza shop, let me find the pizza shop and let me find directions. No, this is the car consuming the map data, that's one use case for the cars. The other is what's re referred to as ADAS. So ADAS basically stands for Advanced Driver Assistance Capabilities. So this would be like level one, two, maybe even two plus. 
-hmm. And so this is when the car can actually, you're still the driver, but the car can basically maintain its lane, you know, move lanes, get on into off the highways and sometimes drive the major arterial roads. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Ford has their products. It's called Blue Cruise. They charge $800 a year to subscribe to it. Underlying that capability of ADAS is map data, as well as the perception system, obviously, right? The perception system is saying, is there a car in front of me or not? Is there a pedestrian? All that. But then the map data is saying, wait, this is where the highway exit is, right? And oh, by the way, you know, there's a construction road work that's coming up. So it's going to go down from four lanes down to three lanes, right? Mm -hmm. um, as you get off over here, the bank angle is five degrees, right? So you have to slow down a little bit. So it's giving the ADAS system kind of these advanced capabilities of what's coming up, right? Mm -hmm. So the perception system is saying, what's in front of me, you know, 50 feet, 100 feet, 200 feet, but then the map data is providing all this context and also telling it, hey, by the way, you know, in 500 meters, this is what you should expect. Yeah. Okay. So because uh, as I said, I'm here based in, in Zurich, Switzerland. We usually ride a bike or uh, take the tram, right? Uh, I haven't seen in my whole life uh, um, uh, an autonomous vehicle, actually. I haven't seen yeah. that. And I know that you in San Francisco, you have now these kind of tests with this. Um, I'm not sure if Tesla's already doing stuff. I think Uber's doing stuff and this new company uh, that has Cruise. been in the news, Cruise, exactly. Um, they have been in the news and they have like these huge sensors like on top of them, right? I mean, it does. it, it really looks like a, a different kind of car, right? Uh, yeah. Um, so what you're saying is, okay, I mean, first of all, the cars and people, autonomous drivers is the main use case for HiveMapper. It's yeah. not a, a, a customer-facing product. Um, I, I'm not the customer of HiveMapper directly on my phone. So not, not yet. Not yet. Okay. It might, might be in the future. Yeah. Yes. We'll talk okay. about that later. Yeah. And, and so you have, to, you have the basically machines that, that need this and companies that buy this, the data. Um, That's right. But you also have the obviously the cars themselves that that are uh, overlaying what they are seeing. Um, so let's go into this dash cam because because you said you have a dash cam that you sell to to the people who map the the area. What is it? Is it just like image based? Is it just like taking uh, pictures or video? Or is there something like I know there's like lidar systems, but they're probably it's probably too expensive. Um, how, what, yeah. what is the core uh, technology there? Yeah, so the core technology is imagery, right? So we know we don't do lidar today, um, and it's basically doing. I mean, it's dynamic. So sometimes, if you're going very slow, it'll probably reduce it down to two or three frames per second as you speed up. It'll get all the way up to about ten, uh, sometimes twelve frames per second. Mm -hmm. And so that is the core piece of technology in terms of imagery. Now, the hard part of is positioning. Okay, so, you know, just taking images of high quality and making sure you have a good field of view and all that kind of stuff. That's not the hardest thing in the world, but the positioning. So what, the, what I mean by positioning is what lane are you in? Okay, okay. if you have a three lane road, you like we really want to know that you're in the middle lane, right? Mm -hmm. Why? Because if we think you're way off, right, if we think you're like on the other side of the road, right, that'd be really bad then it's much harder to then to position all of the objects that we see uh, that the camera sees properly, 
Mm-hmm. So, okay, that speed limit sign, all of a sudden, like if you're off by like, you know, let's say 15 feet or 20 feet, then that speed limit sign is also going to be off by 15 to 20 feet, right? And so the more accurate that the positioning data is from the camera, then it's much, much easier to scale the map because all of the different objects are correct. Mm-hmm. So the the dirty little secret of mapping is, I don't know, dirty, it's not, dirty, it's not so dirty, <laughs> as well, but it's like, it's position, it comes down to positioning. The positioning yeah. problem, it is incredibly challenging, incredibly hard. That's one problem. The other problem is spoofing. Mm-hmm. So as you get more and more popular, uh, and obviously we have an incentive system, a reward system in terms of this honey token. The other big problem is that people try to spoof their location. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm driving in Venice, California. No, you're not. You're in like, I don't know, it's in Brazil or wherever, right? Um, and obviously that has, you know, really negative consequences in terms of the trustworthiness of the map, but all crowdsource systems deal with this. And they usually deal with it like much later on, kind of post-processing. We deal with it on the device itself, right? So the device is using Helium, some other kind of capabilities uh, on the device itself. I wouldn't say to totally eliminate spoofing, but to dramatically reduce spoofing. Okay. I think this positioning, I mean, I, I don't want to go super technical, but I'm still... Um, curious to understand it a bit better. Um, I, obviously, there's this one. I mean, there's one thing which is GPS, right? Everybody knows that. Yeah. I think it's usually a triangulation, literally, of at least three different kind of satellites, and where they overlap. Uh, th- there you are on the on the on the globe. It's usually just one place, but it's not terribly precise. Um, yeah. To make it more precise, you you now mentioned Helium, which is also another uh, Solana-based project, and probably looking at the image itself or what, what is there the secret to make it like more um, precise? Yeah. So look, the, the GNSS module, basically, so GPS is one of the different constellations that we use. There's a whole bunch of others. So the underlying technology is called GNSS, but we can just use GPS for, for this right. conversation purposes. So the GPS module that you have in an iPhone or most Android devices is very cheap, right? The reason is the consumer, like most applications or use cases, you know, when you're driving around or you're just open up Google Maps, you don't have to be that precise, right? Because there's a human being who's like, okay, I'm not I'm kind of off by a little bit or wherever I'm at. I'm looking at the map. I know where I'm at. I can look around me. <laughs> um, but in the case of the dash cam, that's not sufficient for us. So the GNSS module or the GPS capability that we have inside the dash cam is going to be much more expensive. It makes up a much larger part of the overall cost in that dash cam than, you know, if you were just building a dash cam and you didn't really care about building a map. Mm-hmm. So that, that's number one. Number two is the imagery itself. So let's say we're able to identify, okay, this speed limit sign is precisely here and we're accurate to like within half a meters, right? So there's a whole bunch of objects, let's say in a city, where we start to build very, very, very high confidence in the position of the objects. So then that basically starts to serve as like a reference design, 
right? A reference manual for all the other objects, okay? Mm -hmm. To say, wait, 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 we now, we know this, this speed limit sign and this stop sign and this traffic sign at this intersection, like we're very confident that they're here. Now we're getting some new information, right? And we don't trust it entirely, right? Or we kind of use the existing reference design to act, well, sometimes reposition objects that potentially have errors in them. That happens post-processing. There's another piece of technology that we're currently, it's not being used right now, but we're investigating it. It'll probably come into production next year, um, which is basically GPS corrections. So these are terrestrial-based um, uh, devices all over the world. Um, you can then ping them and say, here is where I think I'm at based on the GPS coordinates. And it'll basically provide corrections because the problem is that you have all this atmosphere that the GPS signal needs to make its way through. Mm -hmm. And so you just have error over error over, over error. And that can actually quite a bit help you. Okay. Um, there's not one silver bullet to improving positioning. It literally something that goes across the entire stack from collection to processing to everything that we do. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that sounds, uh, very highly technical and, and uh, like a huge complex problem. And to layer on top of that, and you already hinted at it, is this incentivation, right? You have um, people who drive for you. They, they need to first buy a dash cam from you. Then they install it in the car properly. And then they need to drive around. And they also need to drive to places where you need the map um, still be mapped out by, by, by yeah. the crowd, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, that sounds terribly co uh, complex. L let's talk a little bit about this incentivation. When you drive, you get a token, and that token is issued on Solana. Uh, right. Maybe one question, just to get it out of the way. Is there anything else that hap is happening on Solana, or is it just this token? Is it, you know, like map data somehow stored on Solana, or is it basically just the payment system and the incentivation system on Solana? Yes, it's primarily the... Uh, the rewards capabilities that all runs on Solana. There is currently no map data that we're putting onto Solana. Mm -hmm. um, there are, we, we may change that, like as we do boundaries. So boundaries would be like, what's, you know, what's the boundary of California, right? Or what's the boundary of San Francisco? Um, boundaries become very contentious <laughs> uh, between countries, especially. Uh -huh, uh, there's okay. a lot of examples of boundary, you know, people ultimately going to war over boundaries. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's right now between India and China, you know, basically China published a map and <laughs> that map, you know, according to India, basically showed some of India's territory inside of China's boundary. So okay. this, you know, so there's a whole flare up around this, et cetera. Th th those kinds of things happen a lot. So we will probably, like once we start to do boundaries, not this year, maybe next year, then yes, that kind of data does belong in my view on the blockchain because it's very sensitive, right? It's something that doesn't change that frequently. Um, and you want to know why it changed and you want to understand kind of the, the audit trail, so to speak. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, just to summarize, you're exactly right. So people drive, um, they install the dash cam and they earn this uh, token of ours that sits on Solana called Honey. And that's one way that you can earn. The other way you can earn is by doing what we refer to as map AI trainers. Okay. So there's these little games you can play online 
Um, you don't need a dash cam. All you need is a computer. You can be anywhere in the world and do that. And you're basically teaching our AI to be better and better at its job, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, teach it how to identify construction work zones, teach it how to identify uh, speed limit signs and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so that's another way that people earn this honey uh, token of ours. Is that, um, you know, when you say teach the system, is it similar like when you when you solve a capture and it says, okay, uh, click everywhere where there's a construction site or is it a little bit more complex than that when you say, when you say teach? Yeah, that's a good, good question. There's a whole wide range of these games. Some of them are easier, right? Like which of these is not a traffic light, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of bad, right? Very simple games and some of them are more involved. You know, some of them are teaching how to position an object correctly. So you're like, okay, hey, like we think the object is here based upon what you see in this image. Does that appear to be accurate? Yeah. Okay. So those are probably, those are the more, like to me, they're the more fun ones because they're more challenging. Um, yeah, it's not as easy as just like kind of clicking through mindlessly. Mm -hmm. And then how many times do you have to show the same thing to a different kind of uh, party that statistically it's... It, you now yeah. know this is uh, the right choice, so to say. I I always wonder that when I, when if I screw up a capture or something, what's happening out there? You know, like will 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 a car drive into <laughs> off the road uh, if, no, if yeah, you're playing yeah, around yeah. with those things? <laughs> yeah, uh, good question. Um, it depends. Is the short version right? Like, who did the reviews is really important. Um, so, like, let's say you and I have you know, really good, high quality reviews or reputation, mm -hmm. then the system will probably trust us, right? Then it'll probably move through the pipeline faster. But if we're, let's say both of our reputations are, you know, just new or uncertain, then it'll take a lot more to kind of move that through, that thing through the pipeline to what we refer to as reaching consensus. Mm -hmm. Okay. Concept, yeah. But this is, this is a very kind of involved part of the pipeline with like a lot of parameters. And because, yeah, people, even people with high reputations, you know, mess things up every so often. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, you, you already touched on some, some, some numbers, and I'm going to read some of them as well that your head of marketing provided me with because um, you're celebrating one year of HiveMapper network liveness, right? So what it says here, uh, you can maybe update if, if you have newer data, is 8,000 dash cams delivered, 5.7 mi uh, million unique kilometers mapped. That's around 9% of the world. You, you said now we're almost at, at six. 80 million total kilometers submitted in all, over 90 counties, this you already said. And um, you're mapping more than 800 kilometers per week. And you have over uh, 75 million reviews. By these AI yeah, that's all. That's all accurate. I would make one little modification there. The average dash cam driver is mapping 800 kilometers per week. So you have, you know, there's a lot more that's getting mapped every single week. But the like your average person who's driving with a dash cam is mapping roughly 800 kilometers per week. Um, is is that a normal amount to drive? Uh, so there's a lot of people, no, uh, but there's a lot of people <laughs> on that work who are, uh, they're Uber drivers or they're Lyft drivers or they're truck drivers. So, so fundamentally they're professional drivers, right? Okay. And so they're out on the road quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
yeah, those people are a little bit different than me. I think I maybe drive, I don't know, uh, half of that per week, maybe even less. So yeah, I will, I will say this, which is like, you know, people who are, if you're into like mapping and you want to enjoy it and you want to try it out and you already need a dash cam, then like, you know, even if you're just like commuting to the office, so doing errands, going out for dinner and driving and all that kind of stuff, then I think it's worth it for sure. I think it's cool. Um, but you know, the people who are definitely earning more are the kinds of people who are Uber drivers and Lyft drivers and, you know, professional truck drivers and delivery drivers and all those kinds of folks. And, and the simple reason is because they just drive a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we have seen, though, is that there are people who buy, let's say, five or 10 or 15 dash cams, and then they recruit drivers, right, Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, and they deploy them into their cars. Ah, oh, they say, okay, you already need a dash cam because a dash cam is a product that people apparently have and need for their own safety, right, I guess? And yep, to want exactly. to be able, you know, if there's an accident and you can prove it wasn't me, it was the other guy. So I, I assume your dash cam also is covering that need of the driver. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so there's a lot of people who are like, yeah, I was going to invest, I was going to grab it by a dash cam. We have two models. One is 270 bucks or something like that. And the other one's a little bit more expensive. That one's like 620 bucks or something like that. And, you know, if you're already in the market for a dash cam, especially the $270 one, that's, that's very competitive. You know, that's like, there's other good dash cams out there as well. That's a that's a very good and a, and a very reasonable price, um, and so you know with this added benefit of mapping and the rewards, then for some set of customers, it's like a no brainer, right? It's mm-hmm. like okay, yeah, for sure, I get you know. The part that I think that goes a little bit underappreciated is there's a lot of people who came into Hive Mapper focus on the rewards, right? And that's that's cool, that's awesome, but I think some subset of those now also just enjoy mapping. Right. I'm not saying that they don't care about the rewards. I think they do care about the rewards still. But what it's actually providing them is a sense of purpose, right? Like you drive around this area and then you're like, holy shit, I mapped this entire area. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's kind of also fun as well. And so I think those other dimensions, and we try to obviously encourage that, you know, sense of exploration and fun and entertainment is kind of that other dimension that a lot of people in the crypto community maybe don't fully appreciate it yet. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, yeah, I, I actually want to dive a little bit deeper on the tokens and the values and all of that. But just to add a note, I can totally see um, that this is cool because, as you said, you already drive a lot, right? And, and now, in your mind, you're kind of a little explorer, kind of helping to map the world and contribute somehow. I, I can totally see that this is something that is interesting especially if you drive maybe somewhere for the first time and you're the first one to map this area but let's now work with these 800 kilometers per week um i heard on another podcast this will net you around 1200 honey tokens per week right and i think i did the math that means you would earn around 18 dollars per week at the current prices of the honey token um which would mean if you do this for a year, you basically pay for the dash cam. So it's 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 currently what what is the the the, the token economics of of the honey token? Why does it even have a value? Do you need it to use the map? Yes, you do need it. So it's like uh, it, 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 the the full system works, right? So basically, customer comes to us. So there's you should think about well, there's two different entities. Okay, so there's 
the high mapper network, right? So if you go out and you map with a dash cam or you do map AI trainers, you're helping build the map. That is all governed and managed by the Hive Mapper Foundation and the Honey Token. Okay. And then there's Hive Mapper Inc., the business. We're we're basically a developer, right? So we built, you know, we initially helped launch the Hive Mapper network, but now it's, you know, it's it's on its own, it's running, it's great, right? Um, but then there's Hive Mapper Inc., the developer. So we just we're a normal startup, right? We go out there, we find customers. Um, we get them into various products that we build, like a scout or the map image API or whatever it is. And then we, we get those customers into a contract and so forth. Uh, we provide tools, we provide customer support and so forth. We then have to turn around and license data from the mapping network, right? In order to satisfy those customer and the demand that we're seeing there. Mm-hmm. And so we effectively say, okay, we have whatever, I'm just gonna make it simple, $100,000 contract. So now we have to buy imagery from the mapping network. This is how much it costs. Okay, we have to spend $25,000. These are just general numbers. These are examples. And then boom, you know, the high mapper foundation goes and executes and buys map credits. Map credits then have to go buy and burn honey tokens from the mapping network. So there's a whole blog post that kind of explains how that works and some documentation, mm-hmm. but that is at a very high level kind of how the entire end-to-end system works. So do you have Hive Mapper or Honey Maxis? I think, you know? Oh, yeah. I don't know Honey Maxis, but like, I think the other part of it is I think that's been amazing is you have these entrepreneurs effectively who are, you know, bought five, 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 dash cams and they're kind of very strategically deploying them in the locations and cities where customers are actually using a lot of maps, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's been really important and really valuable because, you know, it's not just about recruiting, let's say you want to expand Houston or you want to expand Rio de Janeiro or whatever it is. It's not about just going to that location and recruiting there. If you recruit entrepreneurs, you know, it doesn't matter where they are. They could be in Chicago or Des Moines, Iowa. Um, they could then turn around and go recruit people in the right locations. Is that like when, when you say different locations? Um, and also heard uh, in other podcasts and interviews that, that you mentioned you own a part of the map. Um, are you like just earning more? Let's say if, if you go somewhere where nothing has been mapped and you get more honey tokens, or do you really have like a stake in the place and the honey token is basically not so fungible? Uh, because I now, let's say I do Zurich and I build my network here and somebody needs Zurich, then I get paid? Or is it just, okay, Zurich is not so well mapped, you get double the honey tokens? Yeah, that's a good question. Okay, so there's a, there's a lot of things going on here. So there's... The first thing is there are different regions over the world. There's many layers to this. I'll at least start at the very top. There's what we've kind of said is that there are certain regions in the world that are more inherently more valuable than others. So let's say, you know, you start mapping in like rural Brazil, you're probably not going to earn that much, right? You will definitely not earn as much as somebody in, let's say, Rio de Janeiro or Los Angeles um, or Lagos or London. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's the first layer. Then if you go down to, let's say, a city, so if all you do is like, you know, let's just take New York, if all you do is drive up and down Broadway all day long, well, guess what? There's a lot of other people who drive up and down Broadway all day long, right? So again, you're probably, over time, you'll earn a little bit, but like, 
your earnings will plateau pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but if you're the kind of driver that sees many other parts of the city, like in New York, right? You go behind the airport, you know, you go to like the small little college, you know, behind the area, whatever, all these little, what we refer to as nooks and crannies, then you're definitely going to earn more than somebody who's just going up and down Broadway all day long. Mm-hmm. And there's another part from a tokenomics perspective, there's really two parts. There's map coverage. So regardless of whether or not somebody uses that part of the map, you will earn something. Okay. So that's the map coverage reward. But let's say you and I both mapped Main and Fifth Street, just making up a, a location. Okay. And then a customer comes and uses Main and Fifth Street, the data for Main and Fifth Street. We will get an incremental reward called the map consumption reward. So just more honey effectively, because we both help map uh, Main and Fifth Street. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's what we kind of, when we say ownership, you don't own it in any sort of legal sense. You just own it in the sense of, okay, for that specific location that you help map, you're now going to get credit on the map consumption side because the customers start to use it. Okay. So basically I could map out an area and the customer only comes afterwards and I'll still get paid. Even if I don't drive this week, I still could get paid from my mapping that I've done the week before. Correct. Yep. This is exactly right. All right. And how, and so, how- so what that does is that encourages what that encourages, you know, people to continue mapping in that area because they're saying like, wait, I, I just got paid for something I did there last week. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I'll go back again this week. Right now I get paid for it, you know, a, mm-hmm. a week from now. Yeah. So it, it's really trying to align. The whole thing is about how do you align supply and demand? Yeah. Right. And so we've really honed in on that and said, these are all the different levers that we're going to use in the network to match supply and demand. And sometimes people criticize us and they're like, well, it's not fair. You know, somebody over there earned a lot more than me, but we both drove, you know, 10 kilometers or 100 kilometers. And it's like, yes and no. Like, I mean, you can build a socialist system or, you know, a communist system where like everybody gets the same. I don't think that would result in a very good map though, right? Because you would have holes and you would have pockets and then you would have data where the customer really doesn't want data, right? And so the name of the game is, how do you match demand and supply, you know? And so that that's what we try to do with all these different levers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I I just want one more question concerning the tokens and, and the value of it. When you say like, um, you know, entrepreneurs go out and they buy 15 dash cams, right? I mean, they want to make money with that system. Uh, what is, let's say, a positive outcome that some, how much could, a person earn potentially what are what are these people like basing these assumptions on um in a bull case let's say for hive mapper that that the token could go up in value because um for me i have, haven't read all that blog posts and uh where it's detailed but just give us a, a, a little picture of what is well, we, we to, yeah. this is a topic that we have to be very very careful on i mean i think there's some there's a lot of laws here especially in the United States. yeah that basically restrict, you know, what we can say. And I think they're, they're reasonable. Right. And I think, um, I always tell people that, look, a couple of things. One is if you're interested in mapping, 
this is a great project, right? Or if you drive a lot, this is a great project, right? Mm -hmm. If you believe that maps are fundamentally useful and valuable for the world, in other words, there's real utility in them, then this is an interesting project. I think if people are looking for certainty, you know, in terms of all anything, I think that's really hard to give. And I think anybody who is kind of giving, you know, certainty is probably false certainty. And so I think that like the filter you have to go through, like in all these projects, right? There's a lot of Solana uh, deep end projects, Helium and Render and ourselves and others. I think the first question you have to ask yourself if you're going to participate in them is like, do I fundamentally believe that they're building something useful, right? And then, it, you know, is this something that fits with my own lifestyle? So, for example, in Helium, there are specific locations where it's really, really advantageous to deploy their wireless network, to deploy their hardware, because they need it for a specific reason or whatever it is. Okay, I may live there, right? Or my office may be there, and I can actually physically deploy that. And so I think you have to kind of go through these levels, as you're making these decisions as to like what you want to get involved in. So, you know, one of the guys who's built up this, you know, fleet of, I don't know, 40 or 50, uh, you know, he's based in Portugal. I, I think in addition to obviously, you know, believing in deep in and all that kind of stuff, I think he believes in maps as well, right? I think he's like, he sees the value of maps and what they provide you know, to everyday vehicles and businesses and people. And so I think that's probably, and I haven't asked him, you know, straight out, but I mean, you can tell just by the questions he's asking, by the questions he's answering, he fundamentally like appreciates maps and all, all of that. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, I, I, I didn't give I, you the direct answer, but. <laughs> no, I, I know that you cannot say, um, you know, like a potential prize, et cetera, because of the law, but uh, I just wondered if it's, if it, is it more like a gamification thing? You know, like when you, when you do Google maps, they ask you something and then you get like a community point or like a little batch. Is it more this in a token form or is it something that people really can say, okay, um, you know, because you mentioned entrepreneurs, okay, I can really, you know, make, make a living with this or, or at least have a, a passive income that, uh, that is yeah. like gas money or something. Yeah. I mean, what I've told people, you know, when, when first High Never came out, people were like, oh, I'm going to quit my job and go do this. I'm going to go buy a new car for this. I was like, don't do no. any of that. It's <laughs> a horrible idea. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, you know, like these people would like DM me like, oh, I'm going to like quit my job. It's like, no, please don't do that. They're like, no, really, I am. I'm like, no. Like, yeah, you should not buy a car. You should not like, you know, even like go to a route that you're not interested in going. Like if you're doing a calculation saying, oh, I'm going to go take this route over here and it's going to cost me like all this extra gas or if you have a car electricity on your, on your electric vehicle, like I think that's the wrong mindset to have, right? Mm -hmm. Like you need to say, look, I'm, I'm driving because I got to get to like whatever, I got to go to the airport, I got to go out to dinner, or I got to go, you know, pick up my kids or whatever it is. And like, oh, I want to go check out this neighborhood. I think it'd be fun. And so, like, I think if that's the mindset that you come with it in, I think that's a lot healthier. That's probably more appropriate for kind of what, what Hive Mapper is. Mm -hmm. And Ariel, like, just defensibility. Um, you say, I mean, I think it's a lot. 8,000 dash cams delivered in, in one year. Um, that's great. But how, how many Teslas are out there? And, I mean, they, they record yeah. as well, right? And they have, like, 
thousands of angles. Like how defensible is hive mapper in that regard? That's a good question. Um, so look, I actually, you know, this this year has been a bear market for us, right? Been a bear market for everybody. And so, um, I, you know, the, there's a scenario where Hive Mapper in a different kind of market would have very, very quickly grown to like 100,000, 200,000 dash cams. I think that would have been horrible. You know, like imagine dealing with 200,000 dash cams. Most of the data, you know, we wouldn't be able to sell, you know, in a timely manner. Um, you know, there would obviously be a lot of issues from a technical perspective, a lot of customer support problems, et cetera. So I think what's happened in this bear market is actually a silver lining in a way that we've grown more organically. Like we've grown in a way that like still amazing, right? From an overall coverage perspective and a freshness perspective, et cetera, still incredible. But we've grown with this community that cares about what's what's getting built here, right? Um, you know, yes, like I think in order to get the entire world, like if you look at large parts of India, they don't have a lot of coverage, you know, large parts of Southeast Asia and Africa, et cetera, we will definitely need more dash cams. That will come in time. I'm not super worried about that. But going back to your question of defensibility, yes, I, look, Tesla definitely has a lot of cars on the road. Their cameras are really designed for perception, not for mapping. So those are two different things. But I don't think Tesla is eager to share all that data. What are they trying to do? They're trying to sell better full self-driving capabilities, which they charge $10,000 a year for, right? Why give up a proprietary data set, right? I mean, algorithms you can copy and repeat and whatever, right? That's not super hard. The valuable part is the data. And so they are definitely going to think long and hard about sharing that data with everybody else because it will reduce the amount of revenue that they can get from their full self-driving capabilities and their own cars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the full uh, self-driving capabilities uh, recently has been revealed were greatly overstated, right? I mean, he got some... Yeah, I, I, think it, I mean, look, I think this is, if you were to go back to, you know, the early days of the airplane, okay? Um, there's a lot of airplane crashes. Tragically, a lot of people died. And so I think we're kind of in that phase. Obviously, like our tolerance as a society for people dying in these kind of tragic situations is much lower than it used to be. I think that's generally a good thing, but that's kind of like, I think we have to take a step back and say like, we're still in this early, early airplane aviation, commercial aviation phase, right? And over time, commercial aviation got safer and safer and safer and safer, you know, to the point where today it's, I think the safest mode of transportation. And so... I think it'll get better and better and better over time, but this is a long process. So you're just starting to see the early phase of things like Waymo and things like Cruise and others as well, but there's a long road ahead of us. Mm-hmm. So I tell people, expect the unexpected when it comes to these systems. Um, and if you're looking for like a, a bulletproof solution, that's going to take a while. Mm-hmm. And it seems you you're said it, um, you guys are betting on AI doing most of the work and obviously then also the AI trainers. But um, when I, you mentioned Brazil a couple of times and I, I go there at least once a year because my wife is Brazilian. And right. there we always use ways because there's this social yeah. layer on top because there's like a person before has mentioned yeah. something that literally you have to tap a pothole or um, there's a police yeah. car there or, you know, yeah. What do you think about this kind of social layer? Is that part of Hive Mapper as well in the future or, or not at all? 
So, so yes and no. You got to remember with Waze, the problem is, is they are relying upon your eyes and my eyes, right, to then interpret what they saw, right? Mm -hmm. And so, let's say you know you detect a construction works out, okay, um, and so you report it, and then, well, um, you know, you may not have seen it, or maybe you got it wrong, or maybe you mishit the button. You know, worst case scenario, you know, maybe you're trying to like play games with the system and game the system. So they need to rely upon four or five or six or seven or 10 people kind of confirming that, hey, yeah, there's actually a construction work zone or yes, hey, there's a police car here. But an image, which HiveMapper gets, it's, it's either there or it's not there, right? And so we don't need 10 people to confirm it because the image doesn't lie. Mm -hmm. And so... Yes, there will be a little bit of community engagement right around that, but I think primarily it'll be machine driven. Okay, no, that's cool. Uh, I think that's an interesting proposition. As you said, the customer is usually a color, or is a, is a it's all API driven, right? It's not like, uh, as I mentioned in the very beginning of the podcast, that there's an app I could use anyways at the moment. Yeah. There's not a, like a map that you can use today. Like there is an app for drivers so that they can, you know, figure out where these different locations are and how much coverage they are. And they can track all their different, you know, honey rewards and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yes, there's not a map that you can use to navigate today to, you know, hey, I'm looking for a pizza. Okay, great. We found a spot. Okay, how do I get there? Type of thing. Not yet. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this saying that um, overnight successes are 10 years in the making. And I have the feeling there is a little story with HiveMap like this as well, because I've seen a TED talk of HiveMap yeah. from yeah. 2015, right? Or, or yeah. something like that. But then it was a mapping for drones. Tell us a little bit about yeah. the history of HiveMapper. So um, the, the, the vision and the mission has always been the same, which is how do you build this new map of the world? That's always been the driving force behind HiveMapper from the very earliest days. Um, something that I'm very passionate about. But we thought initially drones was the way to go, right? Why? Because drones, unlike satellites, fly below the clouds. Uh, and they also get, it's a kind of a two for one, right? In other words, you get not only the aerial view, but you also get most of the road definition, right? The street signs and stop signs, all that kind of stuff that you can only get from, you know, primarily before they can only get from cars. And so I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is the first time that you have a two for one. Now, that was on the positive side. That, that mostly is true, by the way. Uh, the big issue is that commercial drones did not scale. Why? Battery technology never really improved. So what does that mean? The drone can only fly for max 30 minutes, commercial drones, that is. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's the same thing true. Like if you go back to 2015, a really good drone would fly for 30 minutes. Maybe now it's 35 minutes, max 40 minutes. The other thing is local regulation. You know, every little municipality would say, no, 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 you can't fly our drones here. And then, you know, you get arrested or whatever it is. And so it made it really hard. The economics and the regulation made it really hard to scale on a global level. So we put that aside. And initially we started to map street level with iPhones and Android devices. Um, and there was a whole, basically the churn, what it comes down to is not just the positioning technology is really crappy, but the churn rates were really high on the contributors, right? Because every single time you will start to like map, you get in your car and you'd have to like mount the dash cam 
there. Mount your phone, basically unmount it, you know, remount it. You couldn't really use it, right? Because the thing was facing the other direction. <laughs> so once they a call or listen to music, you couldn't. And people were like, screw this. I want my phone to like, you know, navigate or like do a call or whatever, right? Well, why um, is it facing the other direction? Didn't you use like the, the big cameras that'll face outwards? Well, I shouldn't say it's facing the other direction, but like it was it was hard to reach, right? Because oh, okay. what, what you want is like you want it up to the top, right? Mm -hmm. uh, to get like the best angle. And it was also faced horizontally rather than vertical. Uh, I see. Yeah. And so it would be faced horizontal. It would be like further away from your reach, right? Mm -hmm. So it was really hard and cumbersome to use. People wanted their phone like right by their hand, right? Yeah. Um, and so the churn rates were really, really high on it. In addition to all the positioning issues, in addition to like customers were like, wait, this like crappy Android phone that you guys are using here. That's like really poor quality imagery. We can't use that. So we're like, okay, we're going to go, we're going to go use dash cams. And we start to use third party dash cams. That was definitely better. But what we couldn't do was we, we couldn't improve the positioning technology. They didn't care that much about positioning. Like, uh, we cared about a lot. And then they did not provide great APIs to hook into all the data. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the other big issue that we had. Ariel, I have two more questions for you. Um, for people listening who want to build something in Web3, growth is always a huge issue. I have the feeling that you learned a lot in terms of how to engage people, how to onboard people. Are there some principles or some some stories or some things that you could share that could be applied to different founders? I know it's a tough question, but maybe something comes yeah. to mind or, or a learning yeah. that surprised you. Yeah. Well, th this probably only is relevant for uh, founders in the deep end category. Uh, I, I think what I'm seeing right now in the deep end category is a little bit worrisome. I'll tell you why, okay. which is that a lot of people who are starting from the perspective of, I'm just going to go build this data set, right? Um, and they don't have a very good, clear understanding of who the customer is for that data set, how big the market is, um, you know, how to actually turn that data set into real products that real customers can use. Um, so I think that's, in my view, becoming, they're like, well, we're just going to monetize this data. We're going to collect the data and then we're going to monetize it. Well, okay, like, or we're going to monetize your time or we're going to monetize your attention or we're going to monetize your car, like whatever. Just like, I think you need to start from the perspective of who is the customer? What are the use cases? You know, with, with something like Helium and their mobile phone, it's like, well, everybody needs a data plan, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. In our case, there's millions of businesses who today use and pay for maps in addition to ADAS, in addition to autonomous vehicles that are coming on board. So I think you have to be very specific about your use case and the customer, the demand for that, and then work backwards from there, right? So, okay, now I identified that if I can go collect this data and if it's fresher and it has these quality dimensions to it, and if I can collect it at this cost, then it will be differentiated relative to all these other things. And so... I think that, you know, a lot of people drew the wrong lessons from Helium. I mean, Helium is like, you know, I, I, I refer to Amir who's, who started Helium as the George Washington of, of Deepin, right? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, like he, he's the you know the, founding the creator. Of, yeah, he's the founding father exactly of this entire category. But I think a lot, some people, not all, drew the wrong conclusions from that. The, the conclusion that some people drew was, well, if you just build the supply, then that's it. You're done. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> No, that's not. That's like that's like half the story, and probably you know, quite frankly, the less important part, right? The other part, the demand side, is actually the more important part. That to me is probably one of the biggest learnings that has happened in the VPN category over the last four to five years. Mm-hmm. It seems to be uh, an issue plaguing the Web three space, uh, building stuff that nobody actually wants, or you know, like a, a solution looking for a problem. Um, what would you be building if you wouldn't be, or what would you be doing with your time? Let's be even more um, broad. If you wouldn't build Hive Mapper, hmm. I don't know. That's a hard one. Um, the one thing I will say though is that you know, especially building this hardware product, is that there are too many entrepreneurs now that are scared of hardware. And I mean, look, if you look at some of the largest, most valuable technology companies in the world, Apple, hardware, Tesla, hardware, SpaceX, hardware, NVIDIA, hardware, um, you know, even Microsoft now has a lot of hardware products. And so I think this idea that we're teaching entrepreneurs to run away from hardware is wrong. Now, you have to be smart about Why do you need hardware? What's differentiated about it, right? How do you combine hardware with software to build more valuable things in the world? And I think this like knee-jerk reaction that like run away from hardware is the wrong approach. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, that's, I think that's a good closing statement. Um, thank you so much for your time, Ariel. Thank what you. is your call to action for people listening until now? What should they do? Well, but I've always like people always ask me about you know um, infrastructure in the crypto space, and mm-hmm. my belief right now is we have enough. We're good. You know, we have Solana. I don't. You know, we have very few people hot in Hive Mapper, and this is a good thing. I think this is a positive thing. We have very few people who are like actually day to day, you know, building and maintaining all of the infrastructure that we've built on top of Solana because Solana is doing its job. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy to use. And so what I tell people now is like, stop doing infrastructure level crypto stuff. Like we have really good infrastructure layer technology in crypto. That's not the problem. The problem is how do you build applications that businesses and consumers love, interact with and solve real problems? And, you know, stop with all the crypto for crypto infrastructure craziness. We have enough. All right. <laughs> Great. I was I was going more for uh, where should people follow and start buying uh, oh, you know, oh, that oh, kind sorry, of stuff. Sorry. But, but, but all good. I, I like that one as well. That's more for, more refreshing. <laughs> uh, yeah, you go to hypepper.com. That's a good place to start. You can follow us on Twitter. Uh, we're pretty active on Twitter as well. And then there's also a great Discord community if you really want to dive in and learn about the community. All right. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Ariel. That was awesome.